the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, right at the very end. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus is here in Galilee on a mountain with his disciples, and uh, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then drop down, if you will, to the last uh, phrase of verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, or unto the end of the age. Now I want to speak a little bit uh, this afternoon, if I can, on the post-ascension ministry and appearings of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Um, It's a period that is known technically as the session of Christ. And just to be clear, what we're talking about is the period from Acts 1 through Revelation 3. Um, and I am not going to talk about the presentation of Christ in glory, which is a whole separate topic, but simply his session and glory today. The term, the, the word session uh, first appears in English in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and presumably he took it from the Latin word sessionum, uh, which is to sit, um, and therefore it refers to the book of Hebrews where it speaks of Christ sitting at the right hand of God and so that is the session of Christ that we're talking about you don't read an awful lot about the session ministry of Christ and I don't know what the reason I think part of the reason is because the church historically has had something of an institutional bias against um, the particular character of this period. The Roman Catholic um, Catechism states that in his session Christ entered into his kingdom. Uh, and while that, and the, 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 the Reformed churches largely conform to that. And while that might be technically correct, it's so incomplete as to be positively misleading I think that would be a little bit like saying well how will I recognize Ted and you say well you'll recognize him because he's got short fingernails um, it's not exactly the most helpful way of presenting it and so what we want to look at a little bit here is Christ's ministry during this period and I think that what, what confuses uh, much of Christianity is that it really looks at Old Testament and New Testament churches as being homogenous. They are one and the same, and therefore to have a period in which Christ's ministry is distinct from other periods represents something of a conundrum for them. But I think if we recognize that the church age and the New Testament church is a special uh, company, unique Uh, from other companies in the New Testament that we will see that the session ministry of Christ really has to do particularly with the church and the present age. And I want to look at this as occurring in two separate streams, if you will. 
if I could look at it first, um, at the ministry of Christ in this period, and we'll look at four of those, and we'll take under that the take the heading for that to be all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth, and we'll look at four ministries of Christ within that period. And then after that, we'll look at the second one here. The second stream, if we can, is the presence of Christ uh, with the believer in the present age. And for that, we'll look at, uh, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So with that, we'll look at some other passages. For the first stream, we'll look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, reading at verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And so the first ministry is that of preparing a place for the believer. Turn again, if you will, to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, reading at verse 25. Wherefore, he, that is the Lord Jesus, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And so the second ministry that I want to look at is the intercessory ministry of Christ. And again, thirdly, if we could look at First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, and reading at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we have a third ministry, which is the ministry of advocacy. Um, we heard a little bit of that about the accuser and the advocate a couple of weeks ago from Baldwin, so we'll touch upon this third one here. And finally, in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, um, John is speaking, verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the middle of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, or as a waterfall. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now I want to read four other passages, just if you'll bear with me, on the presence of Christ uh, in the present age. And we'll look first at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, reading at verse 52, this is Paul, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, Stephen condemning the Sanhedrin. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And of course, we know they took him out, and they um, stoned him. And verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Second one, if we could, in Acts chapter 26. chapter 26 and we'll read I guess at verse 12 whereunto this is the Paul giving Saul giving his conversion story whereupon I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday O king I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me when we were fallen to the earth I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Uh, Acts 10, please. Acts 10, verse 3. Uh, This is speaking now of Cornelius. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? Then Cornelius recounts the uh, episode himself in verse 30. He says, "Uh, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thy alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. And then we already read about the fourth appearing, which was in Revelation 1. That one sort of does double duty. But we'll read one more passage in Revelation in chapter 3. Revelation in chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. 
Now just to look for a couple minutes at some of these uh, things that we have taken up here. First of all, we look at the preparatory ministry of Christ. Um, of course, we've always heard you know, about the mansions and heaven and the people who got less because they sent less up there and, well, we didn't have much building material to work with and so on. But when you read the verse, what you realize, of course, is that the mansions were already finished. Um, he said, in my Father's house are many mansions, so there's nothing left to be built there. He says, rather, I go to prepare a place for you. I think we've all, I think you'll all recognize this. You've been somewhere and you feel very uncomfortable. Not because it's necessarily a bad place or a wicked place or there's anything wrong with being there. You're just uncomfortable being there. And after you leave, if you're with somebody, maybe you say to that person, you know, I really just felt out of place there. And so I think what the Lord Jesus is telling his disciples here is, I go to prepare a place. Now, I'm going to build something fancy for you, but really I'm going to prepare some place for you um, that you will feel at home. You remember the um, shootings up in Newtown, Connecticut, and of course they were the children had to go back to school again. They couldn't just stop attending school, um, and their school was a crime site, so they couldn't go back there. And so um, they had to ship them off to a different school. And they felt that it was traumatic enough for these children what they had already endured. They didn't want to have them endure uh, a change of venue, uh, things being very different from what they had been. And so what they did is they hired a moving company that went in there and they took pictures and carefully documented every classroom in the place and where everything stood and then basically they, as best as they could in a different building, um, they recreated the classrooms in the new school. And of course, elementary schools are sort of cookie-cutter places anyway, um, so there probably wasn't that much difference, but if the teachers sat away from the door and the windows were on the right, well, in your new pl- classroom, the teacher sat in the front and the windows were on the right, and if you had done a drawing of Santa Claus and it was on the left wall, it was still on the left wall in the new place. And the idea, of course, was to make them feel comfortable when they got there, um, to feel like they would walk into the room and they would say, this is my classroom. I recognize it. And so I think what the Lord is telling uh, uh, his disciples here is, I go to prepare a place. We talk about going home to heaven. And of course, home is a place that's familiar, but we've never been there. So how could it be home? Well, I think that's the, the, the message that the Lord is giving to his disciples here is, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm not exactly sure what heaven will be like. It doesn't really tell us very much in scripture about it. Uh, But whatever it's like, I think that it's intended to be a place that we will immediately feel at home. So that when we get there, it won't feel 
exotic or will feel out of place and will say, this place is very, very strange to me, but rather it will be a place that has been prepared for us. Now the second ministry of Christ that we looked at was the ministry of intercession. And if you could think of intercession and advocacy as being bookends, if you will. The ministry of intercession of Christ is intended to preserve the believer. This world is a place, obviously, that is at war with God, if I could put it that way, that uh, is against everything that the believer believes in. Um, And the Lord Jesus never said anything about that being changed or about us being comfortable with the place that we are in here. But what he is, is he is making intercession for us, and that is he is, if you will, watching over us every day. People talk about guardian angels. I don't know whether there is such a thing, um, but certainly I, I do know this, that there is a man in heaven who uh, is interceding for us, and that is that he is watching over us. Who knows how many sins each of us have been preserved from through the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Goodness knows what we would all get into if it were left to us, but it's not, because there is one in heaven who is interceding for us at the throne, and he is working to prevent um, us from entering into that which would be detrimental to us as, as believers. And so that is his intercessory ministry. If you wanted to think of it this way, uh, although I don't have a necessarily have a scripture, and the intercessory ministry is working with the Holy Spirit in the preservation of the believer. The other we heard about uh, a couple weeks ago was the advocacy of Christ. Um, and we read about that in First John. Now you remember when Paul, in his second imprisonment, in his first imprisonment, of course he went to Rome, and as far as we can tell, he was eventually acquitted and released, uh, possibly never came to trial in the first place. But when it comes to his second imprisonment, he says, at my first answer, no man stood with me. In other words, I did not have an advocate, is what he is saying there. Evidently, politically, things had changed for Paul in the intervening period, and it was no longer safe for any Roman lawyer to represent him. Probably in the first one, is for one of his first acts in getting to Rome would have been to hire a lawyer. Um, we don't read anything about that, but that would have naturally come. But on his second imprisonment, it does not appear that he was able to engage the services of a lawyer. And so he says, no man stood with me. And so you have a judicial setting here with um, Paul being accused. We don't know what the second uh, imprisonment, the accusations were. Um, And we have the emperor as judge, and we have Paul standing alone without an advocate. Now if you will look at 1 John, what you realize is that is not the picture in 1 John. Because what we do not have in 1 John is we do not have the accuser accusing and the accused, us, standing before God. 
and the advocate standing with us. Rather, what it says is that we have an advocate with the Father. So what's in view here is not God in a judicial setting. It's not us standing before the bar. It's the accuser presumably making his accusations, but we have the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and he is sitting with the Father and he is advocating with the Father. Not advocating with God, it doesn't say, but advocating with the Father. And so the, with that, the accuser's accusations are put to silence. The need for a judicial proceeding no longer exists. Because as we heard this morning, it's finished. Um, the accuser may take the tiniest thing that we do, and really the more holy a person is, more like, the more likely he is to bring, a, bring up the minus, minorest infraction, or what we would consider anyway to be a minor infraction before the throne. But the answer to that has already been given. And so we have an advocate with the Father who uh, immediately takes it away. All there is for us to do is simply to confess our sins, as we read. And I think maybe we have somewhat too of a warped um, thought process with regard to confession. Confession to us is a man sitting in uh, a box and someone else going into a box next door and pouring out all the wrongdoing that they've engaged in. We are never to think that. That's not confession. That's really evil to my uh, way of thinking. Confession is made directly to God, but it's not the details. God is holy. He knows what happened. He doesn't need it to hear from us blow by blow detail again. Confession is simply the acknowledgement that we've sinned. And with that, He is faithful and just to put away our sin. So that is the advocacy ministry of Christ. Then the last we looked in Revelation and we see the um, we see the Son of God or Jesus as John would have known him. It's kind of a poignant setting here. Um, at one time there were two young men who walked through Galilee, but now one has grown old and feeble, and the other one is still and the prime of his youth. Um, and so he comes to heaven and he sees this one and he's walking among the candlesticks. And so he's walking among the seven churches here. And his ministry is having to do uh, with the well-being of these seven churches. And you will notice that there's only seven. And there were more churches. There are more churches in Asia than just seven um, but we only read about seven here. Now, we don't know the reason for that. Right down the road, a couple miles from Laodicea, was the city of, or the town of Colossae. And there was a church of the Colossians, but it's not mentioned here. Um, and just north of Laodicea, up on the hillside, was the resort city of Hierapolis. Um, still a resort city today. And there was a church in Hierapolis, but that's not mentioned here either. But we don't know what happened. I, I don't want to suggest that the reason is necessarily a bad one, but I think we have to 
allow the possibility that the reason those two churches are missing is not a good one. Um, you know, the, um, the Christian churches didn't disappear. You know, sometimes you would think, wow, these churches were gone at the end of the first century. A hundred years ago, there were still churches in Smyrna. Um, I know we think of the Turkish peninsula as being Turkey today, but remember that until 1922, it was Greece. Um, and it was in 1922 that the Christians were driven out of Smyrna. The name of the city was um, changed to Izmir. Many of them moved to this area. I mean, in New Jersey and Long Island and Astoria, you have large Greek populations, and that's the reason why. Um, so there were churches in Smyrna in 1913. Um, but was the Son of God still walking among those churches in 1913? I don't know the answer, but I'm going to hazard a guess that the answer was no. Simply having an institution doesn't make it reality. And so there's something here that's possibly concerning in the fact that two churches have vanished by the time we get to Revelation chapter 2. Maybe there's a good reason for it. Maybe it's not uh, necessarily something bad, but it's just something to uh, to think about. Now look at the few minutes that remain at the four appearings of Christ. The first one that we read about was uh, the appearing of Christ to Stephen. And by the way, I don't want to suggest that this is all of the ones in the New Testament. I picked four of them. Um, certainly there are more than that. But uh, in the first one we see Stephen. And Stephen is brought in here in a judgmental way. He is really the last, well he's not the last, um, he's not the last representative speaking to the nation of Israel, but he is the last important one. The ministry goes on until the end of uh, the book of the Acts, uh, when Paul meet with the Jews in, in Rome. Um, some believed and some did not. But certainly this is the most important of them because this is the one before the main body of Judaism or the council or Sanhedrin. And so Stephen comes in and he appears before these men. These were, this was the same room where Jesus was condemned. Stephen probably sat in the same seat where Jesus sat and where he was condemned. And here they met together and Stephen doesn't pull any punches here. He tells them plain and simple that uh, you murdered your Messiah. Now the Peter had already said the same thing, of course, to the people, the, the, the non-council members. And you remember they said they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? So some of them at least recognized the error of their way, and they um, realized that something needed to be done about it. But when we come to the council, we find only one man that apparently took the matter to heart. There's no record of any of the rest of them. Uh, it just says they took him out and they stoned him. And he looked up into heaven, and he saw uh, Jesus standing now, I don't know exactly what the, the significance of the standing is. I would take it that he was standing um, possibly in honor of Stephen. Stephen had fulfilled 
uh, what the ministry that Christ had for him. He had gone in. Some of you, if you, if you remember the old uh, story to kill a mockingbird in Atticus Finch as he leaves the courtroom, all of the black people in the gallery, they all stand up, even though he's been unsuccessful uh, in defending the defendant. So possibly there's something there that um, the Lord Jesus stood in honor of Stephen. But in any event, he says, uh, I see I see that. And then we have Saul, and Saul is introduced to us at this particular point. I would take it that although Saul was not saved until he was on the Damascus road, that he was convicted, convinced intellectually by Stephen. Because he seems to me to be a man at war with himself. Um, The intellectual side of belief in Christ is usually not the challenge for most unbelievers. Usually they can get through that pretty easily. It's usually the emotional side that's the challenge. If Paul believed Stephen, what he said was true, it's certain that he didn't want to believe him. Um, It's certain that he thought somehow in his mind that if he destroyed the Christians, this whole thing could just be made to go away just made to vanish somehow. He's a man that strikes me at least as a man that's on the royal route to madness. Um, he's out there on the Damascus Road at noonday. I remember a picture years ago. It showed Noel Coward uh, out in the Nevada desert in the middle of the day uh, with the sun beating down and the bo- in the back is a big black Rolls Royce and a butler with a tray and a drink and Coward is in a of course, a very elegant evening jacket, and the caption underneath was, Mad Dogs and Englishmen Go Out in the Midday Sun, which, if you remember, was the line from Coward's most famous song. Um, now, I'll leave it to you to decide whether Paul was a mad dog or an Englishman, but no one in the Middle East goes out in the midday sun. Some of you I know have lived in the Middle East, and no sensible person is out there, but Paul was out there. And the Lord wrestled him to the ground, and basically it seems what he said to him is, I need your decision, Paul. You have to make up your mind. We read in the book of Daniel of a a man that prophesies of a man named Antiochus. Um, He called himself Epiphany. He was Antiochus IV. Epiphany is an appearing of a god, so you can sort of tell what he thought about himself. And he was met on the beach in Gaza by a Roman general. And the Roman general told him, Antiochus, go home. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Go. And Antiochus said, I need to think about it. So the Roman general took his walking stick and he walked around Antiochus and he drew a circle in the sand. And he said, the Roman Senate requires your answer now. And so Antiochus said, okay, I'll go. Um, On the way back, of course, he stopped in Jerusalem to erect a statue of himself, which Scripture refers to as the uh, abomination of desolation. But he had to give an answer. The general required it. And he was powerless not to give an answer. Well, 
Paul is here brought down. He's been fighting against God, but now he has to give an answer. And so the Lord Jesus brings him down. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And so Paul recognized, I guess, that he had been fighting a losing battle. Then we come to Cornelius. Um, And in Cornelius we find a man who it appears that the Lord Jesus himself appeared unto Cornelius. At first, at first it says an angel appeared unto him, but he addressed the angel as Lord, and the angel didn't object to that. And then later, of course, he, when he's describing it, he says, a man appeared unto me in bright clothing. So I would take it that the Lord Jesus appeared unto Cornelius. Later in the chapter we find that uh, the Lord Jesus spoke to Peter, but he only appeared to Cornelius. And so this man here was given a sight of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he therefore comes in almost, if you would say, on a level of equality with the rest, with the Jews. You know, if it had only been the Jews that had seen um, the risen Lord you might almost say that the Gentiles were brought in as second-class citizens. But I would take it that by the Lord himself appearing to to Cornelius, that they are brought in on a level of equality. And you also notice that the one that they are given, is uh, as as the, the preacher to them, is the best that Judaism had to offer. If, you know, Paul's reasoning, which was erroneous, was that, you know, he should be the minister to uh, the circumcision. Because after all, who, uh, who is more knowledgeable in Judaism than him? But that, of course, he realized would have left the, the Jews, the, 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 the Gentiles, as sort of second class. They would say, well, you know, um, the best is really in Jerusalem, but... Um, we, we just got kind of the cast off. The, the B team came to preach the gospel to us. So that's not what happens. Not only does God appear, uh, the Lord Jesus appear to Cornelius, but in terms of who is sent to deliver the gospel, it's the best that the nation had to offer at that particular time. And then we come at last to John, and John is there and he's an old man and he falls down at the feet of the Lord Jesus very different sight than what he knew I mean he obviously knew who it was but it was a very different sight than what he was used to when he walked here on this earth Um, and so we have here the Lord appearing to him at the end of the more or less at the end of the apostolic age um, and he shows him the things that are to come. And then we find in chapter 3, we find sort of the, the brackets to this first thing. The Lord Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And the um, Lord now comes to the Laodiceans, and he says to them, um, If any man will open to me, you see, they uh, he's, he's on the outside, obviously, looking in. They almost might think of him as on the inside trying to get out. 
Because, you know, the Lord didn't say, Lo, I'm with you every Sunday and every midweek meeting for the rest of the age. He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so the church has largely taken him and they've put him into a, a container. You know, Lord, we built you this lovely church here. Look at the beautiful stained glass windows and the great organ. Um, you just stay here and we'll come and we'll visit you every Sunday. But that isn't what the Lord has in mind. Um, there, it wasn't that the Laodiceans weren't coming to church. As far as I know, they were. Um, there's no fault found there. But once they left the church, that was the end of the Lord until next week. Um, and so he says, I want to come in, I want to sup with you, and you with me. In other words, lo, I want to be with you always, even unto the end of the age. So in other words, what the Lord Jesus is looking for in terms of presence is to be with each believer during the age, all of the time. Um, to be a house guest, if you will. To be seated at the table. Um, to participate in whatever happens in the home or whatever, but to be a constant presence with the believer. You know, we talk about going home and feeling at home and um, the Lord preparing a place for us, but it's hard to imagine how heaven will be a home if the Lord Jesus is a stranger. Um, it would be kind of odd, I think. It can only be home if he's with us all the time anyway. If we're so used to him on a day-to-day -day basis that when we get there, it just won't be anything different. And I think that's really what he's driving at here as he closes um, what we would see as really the, the ending of this particular age. Chapter 4, of course, brings us, it says, after this, and most would look at that as being looking out to a future day but as we look at the closing of this age it's really um, open the door to me so that I can come in and lo I will be with you always even unto the end of the age shall we pray our father we come before thee now at the close of this meeting we thank you for the